and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and this week we are going for a ride. Well, actually, we're doing two. We're doing a back-to-back double ep where we're effectively looking at two films, though, from the same franchise. We're, in fact, doing um, the mission that uh, IMF has given us, Mission Impossible episode, or I guess film one, and film five. Uh, we thought we'd have a look at how things have moved since John Knoll first took the helm of the visual effects in Mission Impossible 1 and, of course, the latest uh, Rogue Nation instalment from uh, Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise hanging off the side of planes. And to talk about hanging off the side of planes is uh, Jason Diamond. How are you, sir? Uh, great. And uh, Matt Wallen, how are you, Matt? I'm good. I'm, I'm just trying to hold on to the last bit of summer. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> I am desperately trying to uh, get the first piece of uh, spring. <laughs> Um, so, guys, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, obviously, two of our seasoned veterans. Um, and what we thought we'd do on the show is rather than just talk about Rogue Nation, which, uh, you know, we obviously could do, uh, I thought it'd be kind of fun to compare and contrast back to the first film, uh, which was, uh, well, some time ago. So before we get into the visual effects, let's have a quick discussion of uh, where we all were when uh, Tom Cruise first decided to uh, leap from helicopters onto speeding trains and uh, get a quick idea of what we thought of the first Mission Impossible. So, Matt, what did you think? Did you like it back in the day? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was pretty fun. It was I was I was actually working at ILM at the time that that movie uh, was being made and when it came out. So uh, I got to see some of the bits and pieces of it coming together. I didn't work on that show, but um, yeah, it was it was good. It was it was a lot of fun. I went to the I think the uh, ILM crew screening was the. Uh, the first time I saw that movie, um, and it was, uh, you know, had all the kind of bells and whistles of, uh, what made the TV show so popular way back when. And, um, you know, the effects work, I think at the time, um, was pretty, uh, yeah, they did some pretty interesting, uh, stuff in, in, in the film for sure. And, um, I don't think I'd seen it a second time until, uh, just a couple of days ago, I, I saw it was on Netflix uh, here in the United States, and so I I, uh, I watched it again, and uh, it's still it's still pretty fun. It, it's real some of the some stuff in it's real dated now. <laughs> yeah, know, like, but it's but it's still kind of fun to watch. I guess in a sense, the film didn't pretend to be in the future, so it's now sensibly in the past. So it's reasonable that you could go to a lot of trouble to steal a two hundred and thirty megabyte um, floppy disk. <laughs> um, Jason, what did you think? I don't remember really being that enthused by it i'm a huge De palma fan and uh i don't know i remember being like yeah it was okay like it wasn't it, i don't recall it blowing me away and the, and the main what, thing what that was I, what was a brian De palma film that you did like that you oh, sort geez, of held it up to dress to kill i mean he didn't make any like that that's the thing you know but dress to kill and blow out and uh geez uh um I'm forgetting them all now, of course, on the spot. But pretty much, I love almost every Brian De Palma movie. You know, once he started getting the, like, Snake Eyes and stuff like that, uh, I'm not sure how well he <laughs> fared in the m- modern era uh, as much, although I think he's still a great filmmaker. I just, uh, I, I, I don't know. Blowout, I think, is a better action movie for him than uh, than Mission Impossible 1. I, I, it's not a terrible film, but it's just, I don't recall it, being as good as the later ones for me, preferably. Well, I things- think I think we can agree that that some of De Palma's work, like Bonfire of the Vanities, um, wasn't exactly uh, you know. Well, that was yeah, that was but- thrown up there with Ishtar, you know. But 
but Scarface kind of was well, uh, not yeah, too bad. Of course, yeah. <laughs> not 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 a bad little film. Yeah, I didn't um, I didn't have IMDb in front of me. Uh, I think I would have gone on a, a rampage of probably the ten De Palma movies or more that I love. Um, but it, it it was also mainly script things like you know Ving Rhames at the time being like the super hacker on the train. And he's like, I can't, I can't get it to work. And they cut to his screen. He's literally typing the words jam signal. Yeah. I remember sitting in the theater and just being like, are you kidding me? Like, come on, just fake it. Fake it. I don't care. You, you've never seen that program? I mean. Yeah, I know. So the, <laughs> um, okay. I'm not a hacker, so I, I, I was unaware of the uh, jam signal I was gonna protocol. Bring up, yeah, I was going to bring up The Untouchables as a film that oh, I just Jesus thought was Christ. brilliant. Oh, Jesus Christ. That's an incredible film. Just that was the film that made me want to see this film because I just thought The Untouchables was spectacularly good yeah. at the time. I remember just being really impressed with it um, I, I, for a lot of reasons, right? The cinematography, the, just the style and the kind of whole thing of it, I just thought it was marvelous. And it was such a good ending and such a good um, kind of really got me to the end. The, the thing I found about this film, The First Mission Impossible, which admittedly was what? I'm going to say like 10 years after that or you know something like that. Uh, like yeah, probably. 96. Yeah. There's some parts of it that I really liked, but it was the exact opposite of The Untouchables. Whereas I thought The Untouchables built to this spectacularly good ending, for me, I never really bought um, the helicopter in the uh, tunnel yeah. thing. It just seemed to be like it had gone too far. I'm going to say jump the shark, but it was, you know, like it was... the Now, the beginning of it, magnificent. You know, you've got the dead um, woman on the on the bed and, you know, and then all of a sudden it, he gets injected and there are things being pulled apart and it's all Mission Impossible like I remembered it in the TV show. Um, so that was one thing. I found the ending just to be... Uh, an action sequence that lacked any Mission Impossibleness. It was like it was the action series, the action sequence of any film of the '90s. Kind of, you know, it wasn't like a really clever, um, super complex thing. And then the other thing is the fact that they burnt Mr. Phelps. Sorry for spoilers. Um, I just was <laughs> really upset about. I was like, but what? Because I liked Phelps. Well, and wasted him in the first show. The first I think movie. you know the the thing that. The thing that uh, De Palma did really well in The Untouchables was decide to use his version of the classic Odessa, Seps, Odessa Step sequence for his final, you know, sort of battle fight sequence for The Untouchables. You know, that's a that's a thing that people have been, you know, a sequence from the battleship Potemkin that people have been, you know, knocking off for, you know, almost 100 years now because it's a classic sequence and it works. They, Terry Gilliam did it in Brazil you know, everybody sort of has their nod to that sequence, but it's a brilliant use of that in the modern, you know, reconstruction yeah. of it. And and look, there were lots of good things in it. That that bit where they go down the back elevator and uh, um, and the baddie in uh, white, I think, you yeah. know, wipes them out in the yeah, elevator. Yeah. That was like really sad. You know, like you cared about characters and characters that you cared yeah. about got killed. Um, whereas in this one, I didn't care about the characters enough that they all got burnt at the... Um, at the sort of first thing in wherever that was, Prague, I guess it was. Um, but having said that, like, I, I really liked it. But here's the thing about the technology you mentioned with the, you know, jam signal thing. 
while I understand what your point was, if you go further, uh, so earlier in the film, and I don't know uh, about you guys, but I thought it was really refreshing that when he sat down to do something on the internet, he had to wait for a long time before somebody bothered to check their emails and send something back to him. Matt, I don't know about you, but that was like the first time I'd seen someone not immediately answer a phone, immediately respond to an email, immediately be, you know, available. Uh, because as a plot device, you don't normally then have your character just standing around waiting for someone to respond for like <laughs> half a day. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Like, I mean, and, and you know, the funny thing about just seeing it again, I, I didn't, I wouldn't have remembered even really any of the plot. I think I only would have remembered, you know, the the helicopter scene uh, and the channel or whatever with the uh, TGV train at the end, and um, and I guess the 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 one big shot that I probably would have remembered was the uh, explosion and the Tom Cruise flying back onto the train. You know, some some pretty uh, fun uh, <laughs> compositing work there, but but um the the email scene going back and forth and then the uh the sort of user interface like the the actual screen animation of like the letter like you know the envelope closing and then it sort of you know in perspective like moves away. off into the distance and it's like message sent and then you sort of sit there for a while and i can't remember he does something else right in the uh does he do something else in the apartment or does he leave and then come back no, i but, think he yeah, stays then, there and then oh no the girl turns up right yeah that's right right yeah, and she survived the the hit or whatever, supposedly too, or something, or the the mission gone awry, and and yeah, and then he gets the other message back from uh, what is the character the uh, Job, Job. Uh, Max Max yeah she, mm-hmm. he's after Job he gets the uh, right which right. is Vanessa Redgrave and Vanessa Redgrave's marvelous I thought Vanessa Redgrave was so good in this film she's just yeah got it's really a it's good... a fun cast and I think the cast yeah. in the in the first film it's like I mean you know I I guess I. I, I never would go into a Mission Impossible, like a movie called Mission Impossible, <laughs> with like super high expectations beyond like, oh, it's like, um, you know, the sort of American attempt at a Bond franchise. Well, except for that, they built storytelling. They built to that later. I think starting with three, three, four, and five have built into like movies where you can expect, you know, while there are still huge leaps of, you know, logic and faith. I think that they're still they're clearly working towards things that are a little more uh, higher expectations. Like they they clearly have higher expectations of themselves. Uh, well, I think though I think though a trope of all of the movies is which you know I think is kind of fun for audiences. Clearly, like the movies have been successful enough to continue to con- uh, make more, but it's it's Tom Cruise you know, uh, doing his own stunts, right? And the big stunts oh, yeah. in the first the, in the first film are like all the sort of acrobatics on the train or whatever, which, you know, some a lot of wire work and some of that is uh, not actually Tom I'd Cruise, I don't think. And then, of course, the, um, the big scene where he uh, shoots the giant aquarium and is running away from the water. I, I remember even seeing like, you know, Dateline NBC, you know, behind the scenes or whatever. And they talked about that scene at the time. And it was like, you know, and of course, the, the new one has the, the plane uh, scene. But I always yeah. think that's a big deal in these movies is that he's doing those things himself, you know. I, I wonder, because... You know, I said that I didn't like that end sequence. It is the first thing that I remember about this film, that end sequence with the, um, which is funny, isn't it? It's the thing that I find least successful, the thing I most remembered about the film. But if I had to name two other shots that just totally, I think, um, were terrific pieces of on-screen theatre, it was that running away from the fish tank, and it's the dropping in the black suit on the wire waste work into the white room 
of the computer room. Oh, totally. totally. Sure. Yeah, and yeah, that's, I mean, been, that's, an and that's been mimicked so many times in other... But it's, you know, it was spectacularly good uh, art direction, completely absurd. Okay, but I'll come back to that. But in terms of art direction, <laughs> costume, um, cinematography, just everything about it, it was a... Its own thing. It worked really well. They didn't need to come back to it. It was. Uh, I thought it was really just so graphic on screen. Well, it became an iconic scene. You know, like scenes become yeah, yeah. their own thing, and that scene yeah. certainly got lip. You know, shoved into the public. Uh, you know, hot, you know, uh, collective brain. Well, um, I think I think structurally too. Like, just you know, before we get into the effects, though, I think you know the 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 movies themselves, like the the very essence and nature of the Mission Impossible movies, is they do follow that um, that that kind of idea of you know major action set pieces, right? That are connected, you know, through story. And I think the stories from time to time are are better than others. Maybe in some cases, like maybe you know three or ghost protocol is better than, you know, two or something, you know, you, you could make these, um, assessments in terms of what they're able to do, but the, the big set pieces, the action set pieces are really the things I think that definitely get the most play. If we run forward to the new, uh, one for a second, and again, just sticking to the plot. Um, I think one of the things that I appreciated about the new Ur films, and it's certainly true in this last installment is that they also don't crack all the tech perfectly. Things don't work. You know, like uh, they almost get defeated mm-hmm. by stuff that doesn't quite do what it should do, um, and that's you know starts from the earliest. And even if it's even if it's that the tech works, like he can't open the right door on the plane that Tom's stuck to the side of, and it's like you know open the door, no, no, the other door, and and so and then you get Tom Cruise being able to play this role of really competent guy, obviously. But occasionally just having this look on his face like, oh, God, um, look what's happened now kind of thing, which I think Tom Cruise, uh, like given that he's aged a little, I think he plays really well. And it has an overtone for me of kind of the Indiana Jones thing that Harrison Ford used to do, you know, where things would just be not right and he'd still kind of muddle his way through. But, of course, uh, he he wouldn't do it in a totally suave kind of way. Would Would you agree with that? Like, I think it's a really nice twist. We didn't see it so much in the first one. By the time you got to this last fifth one, it's playing really strongly, especially off Simon Pegg's Benji character. Yeah, I mean, I just I just listened to a great podcast. Uh, this uh, this guy Jeff Goldsmith has a great writers podcast called the Q and A, and he had a screening of Mission Impossible 5 here and I think it was in New York, maybe LA, and he had Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise on the stage and it's in literally like an hour 20 of the two of them it's, talking it's about a great interview. Yeah, talking about uh how they make the movies together and it's just the two of them for the most part like sitting in a room just throwing ideas at each other and I think one of the things McQuarrie was really worried about was that he says in the interview is um we're constantly trying to shove humor into this and we constantly feel like we're never putting enough comedy into the film and we're throwing jokes down in abyss that will never fill up. And then we watch it with an audience. We're like, Oh, thank God. Like it all works. And he tells a Tom Cruise tells a great story about when he does the, after the Taurus, I won't go through the whole story, but uh, when he goes through the Taurus, you know, underwater bit and then, goes and tries to jump across the hood of the car and like face plants. Yeah. You know, that was an, like, that was a Tom Cruise idea that Macquarie didn't even know about that. He just like came up with on set and was like, just roll. I'm going to do something. And so I think 
that what you picked up on, Mike, and obviously they, they follow through on production design and, and, and even visual effects, is that they're constantly trying to not be so serious and poke fun at both Tom Cruise, you know, at his as himself and the technology, which which uh I I also love that. You know, when he gets I think they do it in the third one, uh or maybe it's the fourth one, he or well no, I know in the fourth one he's gotta run alongside the train and like, you know, type in yeah. the code, you know, it's hilarious. And then he's gotta do the eye scan, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But also his glove not working, right? Right. Well and that's yeah. his plumbing. And the uh, even I think the very start when he gets out of the Russian prison, he goes to the phone for the universal yeah. self destruction. Oh yeah, and it, it blows just up. doesn't. Um, and so I think that's really good. So I think Simon Pegg adds an enormous amount uh, oh, to the film. Um, what do we think about? Uh, uh, is it William Brandt, the character that um, Jeremy Rayner plays? Is that um, yeah? He came in what the fourth film, fourth right? From film, yeah, yeah. What do we think about? I mean, obviously as um, Hawkeye, he's now an international star, so a big name. Do we has he contributed much to these this fifth film in terms of a character? I feel like his his role is kind of more minimized in this film than in the last one, but I still think he's kind of an interesting um sort of uh you know friend but who the guy you know in this in this uh uh installment right the uh his old teammates come back uh Cruz's old teammates from the previous films come back and they're sort of skeptical and you know not really certain if he's uh, if Jeremy Renner's character is really uh you know in it to win it so to speak and i don't know i i mean i i enjoy uh seeing him on screen and then uh you know Alec Baldwin too i think it's you know they they got some uh great actors to come in and play these kind of smaller roles and kind of fill out the um the rest of the cast and then the the baddie in this movie i can't remember the british actor's name off the top of my uh, head Sean he was, Harris Sean Harris. Yeah. Yeah. And I, 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 for the longest time I couldn't place him. I was like, well, how do I, where do I know this guy? And I realized he was the guy with the, the Mohawk in yeah. Prometheus. And it was yeah. the voice that got, that made the connection. I was like, Oh, it's kind of cool to see him in another thing. And he was fantastic. He was appropriately evil. You know, he was so uh, sinister as a character and, and he seemed like a good uh, nemesis. I thought, yeah. So Hang I on. guess I'm saying I liked all the I thought all the casting choices I give me more I didn't Luther think anybody screen, was personally. miscast. Oh no no I don't yeah. think so. Either. I thought I thought it's a I thought it was a good idea to have someone like you can't have if it's called Rogue Nation and they're sort of implying that the IMF is now rogue that you can't have all the players out in the field. You need someone to ground it. And by having Renner back at home base, you know, arguing the sort of bureaucratic administrative side of the problem, A, keeps him keeps them with a connection to the home base where they can potentially reach out or have help from there uh, as they as clearly, you know, Simon Pegg is trying to do in some fashion by by, you know, maintaining his lie, you know, at each one of his weekly polygraph, you know, sessions, but also also um they give him some action when he has to go back in the field it kind of felt like you know when marcus brody shows up you know and tries to you know fight in the indiana jones scenes obviously uh obviously renner's up you know his character is more able to fight than marcus is but it's sort of that <laughs> it's sort of just that 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 idea you know yeah. that oh i'm here you know like the the scene when they get in the jeep and they drive away yes. in the motorcycles and he's like you had to get the four by four didn't you you know yeah. 
He's like, come on, go faster. You know, that was hilarious. I, I must say, I loved that shot when uh, Tom Cruise is upside down in the car and the guy gets off his motorbike and starts walking towards them and he's, you know, struggling to see if he can release from his upside down smashed BMW. And all of a sudden, the oh, truck yeah. just wipes out the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's nobody's... the kind of stuff there's so much of that like i mean yeah. when you're talking about jason with the uh the the jeff goldsmith interview i think it's it's so insightful uh and and that's a, a, such a great interview i heard that before i saw the movie and and then watching the film and i i felt like there were so many little devices like that where they plant a seed and then it sort of comes back or they they introduce a joke and then it pays off a little bit later yeah. and i felt like the script um and the way that a lot of those little devices worked um it made for a really tight uh, movie that was even though it was I think over over two hours right running time yeah, like two I mean it, it didn't yeah it didn't feel it didn't feel like it I mean it was it was entertaining throughout like I I mean I definitely um, you know felt like I got my money's worth I also thought that uh, Rebecca Ferguson did a oh, you know a good job in the film and really didn't fall into either you know sort of token chick in a bikini or ridiculous chick that you just didn't need but they obviously needed a female on screen um, well in that yeah, goldsmith cool. I, I didn't recognize her from before but i thought she was really cool she was she amazing was i thought you know she's she's beautiful which you want in a in a in these types of movies not to be sexist but you know also also she does incredible, you know, stunts and is a, and is a great actress. Like she sells the yeah, role, she was, right? I mean, yeah, and she seemed tough. Like she yeah. was believable in yeah. the yeah. part. Like she seemed like a real tough. Uh, it is annoying when you get somebody like that, and then they give her a, if she isn't tough, which I, I agree she was, and then you give her a fight sequence with someone near the end, and you just go, I just cannot believe that this right. person could hold their own. It's just not happening. Yeah, and her and signature I, move, you know, the the climb up with the the yeah. neck snap is a good one, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I thought it was uh, I thought it was good. But like, okay, so we, we think that the film is pretty good. Um, can we just now discuss, before we get onto visual effects, because I just need to get this off my chest, who on earth thinks that the easiest way to run a computer is to put it in a water tank underneath <laughs> a power plant <laughs> with a circular system that is impregnable, but uh, let's just leave it so that the one way in doesn't have, oh, I don't know, a grate on it to stop someone getting in and swimming in? I mean... It's the Death Star. It's it the is the stupidest thermal transport. But go back to <laughs> yeah. Mission Impossible One, and it was like the stupidest room in the world, the most expensive room in the world to have a terminal that you had to like, you know, have eighteen bloody eye scans and walk in, and it was a special folding table. And what is in this white room? And also, what are these hard drives that they work better <laughs> underwater? And the only way out is through this door that can only open from the inside. As my daughter said, how does anyone open it? From the outside, if you can't open it from the outside, do you have to already be inside to open it? Would make it kind of hard to I change can, a drive, wouldn't it? I can answer the water question from the podcast where they were working. There was not supposed to be water in the Taurus initially, and the uh, production designer just decided he wanted to fill it with water and didn't tell anybody because they were like so crazed. And that studio was coming by to do a bunch of. Uh, do a, you know, look at everything. So they were just throwing all the pictures they had up on the wall, you know, all the production design and all their reference and everything. And nobody saw it. And Tom Cruise walked in the room and saw it. And he goes, oh, awesome. We're going to do an underwater thing. Cool. And then they're like, okay, now we got to keep it filled with water. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's now obviously nobody's, most people who see the movie, probably 99.9% .9 of the people don't know that. I think it's a really awesome 
what reason for there being water. But yeah, of course, it's like someone just assumed that it's a giant, like, you know, uh, liquid cooled, you know, somebody probably told a guy about a liquid cooled computer and he's like, oh, we'll just fill it with water. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, mean, uh, totally you can only re- open, you can only open the door to get into it from the inside. That would be, yeah, what, it's, that totally, would look how? It's, it's completely ridiculous, but it does seem like that's kind of part of this franchise too, is that you build these sort of like, you know, impossible scenarios, right? I mean, that's, it's the mission impossible, right? Well, it's and they like keep saying something that, don't they keep saying like the the line like well is that really an impossible mission like did, don't they say that right. like once or twice <laughs> in the movie? Yeah, I mean it feels like they're really kind of having fun with the yeah. the concept too, and like yeah, it's totally ridiculous. But then once you just sort of you know you give over to the suspension of disbelief and you kind of let yourself go there, like it it plays off as like I, I mean I thought that was one of the best sequences in the movie. It was so much fun to watch, and it was a really like harrowing. I, and I was, well, and also I how did they know what the so key dark. cards looked like to replicate <sighs> them? Right. Yeah, That's and also, like, you can just pull out one live and stick another one in underwater, and it's yeah. all going to work. And, and like, throw the who door the hell away? makes waterproof distros? Well, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the motion capture sort of, like, a system of, like, judging someone's gait. Which was amazing. Was so goofball. Yeah, it was a perfect, it's a perfect <laughs> like, setup oh, for I'm, physical I'm sorry, comedy. I sprained my ankle playing squash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I love, and I think they introduced this one, I think J.J. Abrams, I'll credit him with introducing this in the sort of Mission Impossible trope you know, visual tropes is he was the first one, I think, to overlap the discussion of the plan, showing the plan in action so that by the time Mm -hmm. someone's done discussing it, you're either actually done with the actual thing you're doing or you're about to start it. And he sort of started folding in and they sort of started doing that in three and four. And in this one, when they talk about the that specific thing, and they get there and, and you know, like Simon Pegg's like, oh, I get to wear a mask? Great. You know, like, and they go through that whole thing. And then they go back and he's like, oh, now we have to do it. I thought that was a good uh, sort of just retake on the, the trope they had started to set up. And they sort of just rejiggered it for that one. Uh, but I, I like those. It's sort of – it's similar to the Ant-Man thing uh, where they, you know, they change the – you know, they, they cut in the voices of the main guy yeah. for everyone talking about it. You know, that kind of thing. No, I mean, I think it's well done. It was just so absurd. Yeah, you know, like I, I could defeat you by just putting a grate on the on the water, <laughs> some bars, to so that it was not person sized to get in. Ah, oh, damn, I didn't think of that. And then you know, it's like, how hot is this water getting? That you have to have that much water going around that quickly with the robotic arm. What does the robotic arm have to do anyway? Why can't you just patch it? I mean, I'm just, you know, there's like so many points that I was like, what on earth am I looking at? I thought the um, robotic arm was keeping the water moving. Oh, really? Oh, well, that was which good. Is, which is an even, you know, less necessary <laughs> thing, right? You know. Yeah, because robotic arms never need servicing, especially yeah. if they're underwater. <laughs> um, okay, so let's get back to some earlier stuff in uh, in this film and in terms of the visual effects. So... As I said, I had um, admiration for the work that uh, ILM did with this kind of miniature tunnel that uh, was then sort of comped with the helicopter thing, the uh, stuff, but I just didn't like the sequence because I thought it kind of jumped the shark a bit. Um, In this one, we have uh, the sequences that we've just described. Um, In this last film, the the fifth one, um, what was the kind of impressive visual effects for you guys? We've touched the plane at the beginning, we've touched, touched on, we've discussed the underwater to death. Uh, anything else really kind of 
I thought the motorcycle chase was oh, really, yeah. really cool at the end of the film. I mean, I, or, or I guess near the end of the film. I, I love that. I thought it was so uh, exhilarating. It was exciting. It, it, there were shades of it that reminded me of, um, you know, being a kid and uh, seeing Return of the Jedi and the, mm-hmm. the speeder bike sequence or whatever. It had that kind of, and it, it, a little bit like the Matrix, uh, too, some of the chase scenes in the Matrix, but so much better. And I thought the effects... Uh, in that sequence were so strong, so many, um, you know, digital cars and I assume digital motorcycles. And uh, well, there were lots of motorcycles on rigs, so the ground had um, like track light in it, so what looked okay. like a motorbike was actually. Uh, and the, the, the only things in that sequence, there was only one or two shots in that sequence for me that like stood out a little bit, and they stood out, I think, only because um, the camera move. Uh, there were a couple camera moves that just felt really almost unnatural like i was conscious of the of the rig you know or of the or if it was a digital camera of the sort of digital camera move and there were just one or two just short bits because i mean every edit in that it's so um, tightly edited unless they're you know really high up in sort of a helicopter pov like way up above the the chase but i thought that was such a great sequence and so brilliantly executed it was really fun to watch i wanted it to keep going on for longer yeah, yeah. I I thought but, it was I thought it was fantastic. I mean, it's nothing really jumped out at me as being odd. I mean, I kind of I was looking for where they were, you know, sort of yeah, I was mixing mixing them really riding motorcycles, which uh my as you know since you heard it, they did drive the motorcycles like super fast for mm-hmm. a lot of shots. Um and, uh, but at the same time, I don't, I mean, I, I couldn't see it. I was looking, you know, obviously they're using Russian arms, you know, obviously they're using, you know, process rigs in some capacity for certain shots, but it was so, you know, kudos to both Macquarie and, and their second unit, you know, guy. And actually, can I, at, at this moment, I just want to point out that bringing Bob Ellswit in to shoot the last two movies was a genius move because the guys, the guys at Deacon's level, you know, cinematographer, he shot every PT yep. Anderson movie up and up until the master. I mean, the yeah. guy is not your action movie director or a DP and the movie looked gorgeous. And I'm a sucker for, I'll take anamorphic any day for anything, but it was like so well shot. Uh, I just have to point that out. Yeah, there are some killer shots, um, you know, effect shots, stunt sequences, and just, you know, shots like when they're in the opera. Oh, the um, opera's incredible. That was just good cinematography. I mean, there were some really pretty shots of yeah. Rebecca Ferguson that were obviously pretty sexist, but in a sense, uh, you know, there were sort of similarly sexist shots of Tom Cruise, so let's assume that we're objectifying men and women. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're going to have a female assassin type, you want to have a couple of Bond-esque kind of yeah. uh, cool shots, and um, yeah, she uh, she she was lit well, and that uh, structure that she was in just served for some really nice framing on her face, and just it reminded me lighting. of some shots from Only God Forgives. I don't know if you saw oh, yeah. that, but there's a lot of stuff because they're in Thailand or whatever. There's a lot of shots in that that are have that sort of patterned goboy looking lighting because it's coming through all that really ornate. Uh, wall or whatever you want to call it, you know. Uh, right. 
Yeah, so it, it was obviously hard to pull off some of that stuff, and I don't, you know, for a second ever understand how they get this film bonded because ordinarily you would just say there's no way that you're going to get uh, the film bonded because, you know, if anything happens to the star, you're going to put production back for, for weeks. And, uh, yeah, the fact that um, – I don't if you heard – I'm sure you did. Um, uh, Tom Cruise was talking on some chat show and there was explaining the whole thing about uh, being on the side of the thing and he was saying to the pilot guy, so we wanted to kind of have me pinned back and the thing and the pilot's going, uh-huh. And he's like, so it'd be really good if I was like horizontal by the time the guys, we take off. And he goes, uh-huh. So when it shoots up, do you think that'll be the case? And the guy's like, I think so. And then Tom Cruise was like, it went to what I was hoping it would go to while it was taxiing. Yeah. That's before <laughs> it even took off, right? <laughs> and so it was like, ah, uh, I see. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Well, yeah. And, and Macquarie says in that in that podcast, they're like, He's like, you know, it wasn't that Tom was on the plane that bothered me because I knew he was well secured. and He wasn't going to fall off. But all I kept thinking was if he gets hit by a bird, he's dead. Yeah, yeah literally. Yeah. <laughs> and Tom Cruise was like, I honestly didn't think about that until we started taxiing the first take. <laughs> and I was like, oh, crap. If a bird hits me, I'm dead. I- I think a fly or something did actually hit him, like some small insect, right. and it didn't hit him in the face, but uh, it could have taken an eye out yeah. just so easily. Uh, yeah. So, hmm. And, you know, like quite frankly, uh, I totally admire him for doing this because clearly he's committed to the the films. Yeah. And I think it means that he gets tremendous um, sympathy from the audience that buys him a lot of... Uh, a lot of points, really. Well, I, mean, I can you know, tell you, I can tell you, like you know, before I think it was before Ant Man or another movie that I went to with my kid. He's eight and a half, and he loves movies. And he, they showed like a making of, and they showed that scene, and they showed it, you know, with no visual effects. You could see the 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 ropes and everything holding him on, and they just show the plane take off. And you're still just like the Burj Khalifa stuff in the last movie. <laughs> you're still like, holy shit. The dude is on the side of the plane and they, you know, they cut to the, to the stunt supervisor who's like, you know, I assumed that we were going to get one take with Tom because this is an insane stunt. And he's like, and Tom did it eight times at his own request. Like, no, we have to do it again. No, we have to do it again. And that, just that marketing, which speaks to what you're saying, Mike, with the audience, that made my kid say, I want to see that movie, right? He saw the trailer and he's like, oh, that's fun. But he's like seeing how it was done and knowing that it was real made him go, I want to see that movie. And he went with it's interesting, me to isn't see it? it. It's, yeah, it's an interesting, like, in, a, in an age of uh, social media and everything else, it's the authenticity of that which then translates to a completely different level of marketing um, sort of brand franchise yeah. loyalty. I thought it was a genius. And not done by many people. Genius marketing. When I saw that, I was like, this is brilliant. Yeah, well, and I think I think there's something else too going on there that you know I I in that same not to keep talking about the the Q and A podcast, but it's really good if it's anybody's really, good. really interested. It's it's fascinating, um, and he's he does so many great interviews with people. But that one in particular was really interesting because I don't know I, I found it um, like Tom Cruise, you know, as a public personality, like you know his you know gets kind of a bad bad rap or he he causes a bad rap for himself or or did for a time. 
but at least as a as a movie star as an actor uh you know he's always pretty fun to watch and he's made some really amazing and great films you know born on the 4th of July or whatever yep. and um you know you you um in listening to that uh, interview one of the things that uh, you know I I really liked is I mean, he's he's kind of a nerd. He's like a yeah. film nerd. Yeah. He's so into movies. He knows so much about like movie history and he like, you know, was talking about how he just, you know, on any movie set, he likes to go up and just ask questions like of, uh, you know, when he was starting out of like, you know, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? Like he just wants to know everything about cinema and like how it works and how and you get stuff done. He still does and, that. I had a, a friend yeah, and of mine, you, and you, and you can said that he was the same on the edge of tomorrow. In his yeah, own that's so cool. And newer way. You can't watch that. And you can't watch that and, and sense that or hear him say that and then see hear the enthusiasm and like see the sort of finished products that come out of uh, his production company and all the projects that he works on and think like, well, you know, I mean, in, in strapping yourself to the side of the plane, it's just yeah. another example of like your commitment to it. And just, you know, he, clearly the guy, he loves it. And like, I think that infectious kind of you know, love of the medium, it comes across in the finished product, you know? And I, I I mean, not to, it's not a great, it's in the end, it's not, you know, the greatest movie of all time or anything like that, but it's fun. And, and it, it really delivers the goods, like in the way that you would expect a movie called Mission Impossible Rogue Nation to do so. Well, and that's the thing. I think, I think, you know, again, in listening to that podcast, he understands the value of a drama like he has that section where he talks about doing totally. Born on the Fourth of July and Rain Man. Those are clearly dramatic movies meant to be very serious dramas in their own right. And they have humor in them in their own sense, but they're dramatic films. Yeah, yeah. This sure is that. clearly executed to be a fun amusement park ride that has a brain as much as it can sustain without turning into a movie it doesn't need to be. Well, I think Mike Mike nailed it when he said it's an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah, I and mean, that's what it is, really. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think the thing is that uh, again, you, you know, one can criticize, but if you actually look at the slate of career of films in his career, I mean, there are spectacular films in there. Like, uh, and now it's this, some of them have become almost funny because they're so parodied, because they're so iconic. But like a few good men, like that was, <laughs> yeah. you know. Him facing off against Jack Nicholson, like a lot of actors would have just been lost there. Now, okay, sure, there's films like Cocktail, but there are also, you know, those Color films. Color of Money. And- yeah. But Cocktail and is, not, th- is not meant to live up against those other movies. It's him and Brian Brown just being like, it's like his slightly, slightly more emotional spring break movie, you know, essentially. Yeah. Right? But but I think uh, there are other films, like The Firm, I thought was a really yeah. good acting performance from mm-hmm. him. Um Interfere with the vampire, the same thing. Magnolia, I mean. Yeah. yeah. And then more recently, I, I really liked Minority Report. I mean, I thought it was yeah. a really good sci-fi yeah, film. And, uh, yeah. and so, and Risky you know, business. now. <laughs> yeah, risky Business <laughs> in its day. Still was, is a good movie. Well, hey, let's, let, come on. Of the three of us, did anyone not see as a young lad Top Gun? Yeah. I know, I mean, oh, yeah. Geez, come when on. I was a young man, oh my God, that was like, yeah, we were. I mean, I saw it. I saw Taps as a, yeah. as an eleven year old kid too. in the movie theater, 
my, I made my dad take me to see it. Cause I was like, Oh, it's cool. It's like, you know, kids my age with like real guns. And I was like really into this. I don't know. It's an 11 year old, you know, little yeah. boys are all into guns. Right. And I went and saw that movie with my dad and my dad, of course, you know, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't do any research about what it was about. And by the end of that movie, like, I mean, I'm bawling my eyes out, like in the theater, like, cause it's just so brutal, you know? And I, <laughs> it was really great. But I mean, he's in that movie. He plays the, like, you know, the cuckoo dude at the end who, uh, kind of loses his mojo. But I mean, yeah, he's, I mean, everything the guy's done, I think, you know, some hit, some, uh, misses here and there, but so many great films. I mean, yeah. And I, I know that films like Valkyrie really suffered from what was going on in his, uh, private life when that film came out. But again, if you just look at the film as a film, as not a huge budget film, it's a really, uh, good, interesting film that you know well, like, and, it's I, a, and it's a cool true story you know which yeah. makes it even more interesting yeah so, yeah so so i definitely think the audience um whatever they they think i mean i personally you know when oblivion came out when when age of tomorrow and this i wanted to go and see them i i thought you know it's like there's an honest commitment this isn't a pampered um thing and i don't want to focus too much on the star but yeah. so let's get back to the visual effects so so when we get to these visual effects and there's this air of authenticity it's it was also risky to pretend like there were no visual effects in the film, right? That, in fact, you know, this was all done in camera and that, and that we're going to get to uh, Mad Max status of, you know, having people say there were no green screens and no visual effects. And then we go, wait a second. <laughs> so uh, so I, I think, though, that I will say that the big difference maybe between one and five is how invisible those effects have become. Like, for me, the biggest contrasting thing, when I go back and look at the first one, is... I can sort of pick shot visual effect shots much stronger. The king, the quality of the um, of just the realism that's coming out of the three D uh, from you know clearly what is now I'm going to say twenty years ago is that right? Ten mm-hmm. years ago? What we're talking six? Yeah, so it's like uh, twenty years ago, right? Yeah. Um, you, it's it's really evident. It's like disturbing. I know, isn't <laughs> 20 it? Twenty years. Um. So that when you see this film today and we see a visual effects sequence, and clearly there are visual effects sequences because, you know, um, if nothing else, uh, we class rig removal in that, in that category, um, and set extensions and placements. And the fact that the whole opera scene, half of it was shot on a soundstage and half yeah. of it was actually shot at the Viennese um, uh, Opera House, and they just blended those two together so well. There's, there's obviously a lot of stuff going on, but I really think that it's incredibly hard today in uh, Rogue Nation to pick what those shots are. That being said, were there any shots that, that did stand out as effect shots? And I mean, I mean, there's not that they're necessarily even bad effect shots, but you just went obviously super CG. Hmm. It's hard to think of them, I, I don't think. I think so. They were pretty. I mean, ob- you know. Like you said, there's shots that you know are CG or are VFX heavy, but they play so well. Like even to the opera house scene, which also and maybe they they disguise it with with humor is when he you know they they rappel down the front and then as they walk away, the whole apparatus just you know falls yep. to the ground behind mm-hmm. them. Like clearly they didn't drop a huge thing behind them. I mean maybe they did, but that would seem unlikely. Uh, so you know that that you know, uh, and that's probably a really good opportunity to just employ some VFX, right? So, but that it felt very, uh, it was there, it worked. Sound design, you know, set it in, and the humor made you focus on them instead of the rig behind them, right? So I feel like that's the 
it's really creative usage of hiding the VFX, not only through doing good VFX, but with proper execution of, of story to make it just sit there, sit in there. I think the other thing for me is in the first film, this is sort of an unusual thing, but I thought that what led it down was when Tom was in old age makeup or in whatever makeup he was in, I could tell it was Tom and I could tell he was in makeup. Yeah. So when he's at the uh, ball or whatever it is and he's um, pretending to be an old senator and he's, you know, there's that whole thing about open the door and, and stuff and he's trying to get in the lift and he's looking yeah. like he's, he's got some kind of white suit on and I think he's meant to be a senator, right? You know, something like that. Yeah. Um, it really felt to me like uh, that's old age makeup right there. That's not, um, uh, that's not really him. It just, you know, I mean, sorry, it's not, oh, it's obviously him. <laughs> Can I say, it's not the character he's portraying. It is uh, the fake. Um, right. They didn't get an older uh, actor to, to just do it right up until the mask reveal. Yeah. And even when we're seeing Tom on the video split uh, as the, it's like on a blue screen, at very, very beginning pre-title sequence for that sequence where, you know, it's very Mission impossible it's like, well, that's Tom wearing makeup. And I can tell that even though Tom is theoretically on a video split screen and it doesn't look right. So when you go to the masks uh, and any makeup in the latter films, they just don't try doing that. And it's, look, you know, you could argue um, about that. But I would say that this is one area that doing it for real just is nearly impossible and just not worth trying. It's to make Tom look like someone else with makeup it's on. It's just so unnecessary. Yeah, and so when he's walking around as that old senator guy, I, you know, you don't need a security card to check whether he's an imposter. You just look at him and you're, right. mate, you're wearing makeup. <laughs> right, um, and when they do the mask reveal in the with with the um, prime minister's you know right hand man in in this one, uh, you know, they do it literally at the very last moment when he's pulling off the mask. Other than that, it's a separate actor. Yeah. And and so there's no way that this doing it for real thing extends to makeup. I reckon that when it comes to doing makeup, there aren't just enough advances in makeup that we've seen in 20 years that you could argue that if you were remaking shot for shot Mission Impossible 1 now, you would go down the same path. Mm-hmm. You'd just be like, let's get an actor that looks like he could be Tom Cruise that's old. And I actually think that those CG effects of like the transition of pulling off the mask, you know, the, where they're doing some, yep. uh, I think they, they're cool. They look really neat. Like it, it actually, like it works, like it works as the gag, you know, like yeah. it's, it's, and you expect it at this point. It. It's, it's, it's done yeah. enough that you know what's going to happen. As soon as he, as soon and as his and elbow I think they're comes well up, done. Yeah. yeah. As soon as his elbow comes up, you know, he's pulling off a mask, right? Yeah. yeah, and because you have to pull it off that way to do the wipe between the <laughs> right. normal face, yeah. right. the rubber mask coming off the normal face in a second take, and the third take of the guy revealing himself under the rubber mask, yeah. <laughs> which is, of course, how you do those shots. And, and you want a wipe device for that, and you want it to be the hand. Yeah. Yep. It's now, it's now the only way to take off makeup like that is from the, the neck, pulling it over the top of your head <laughs> with it stretching as it comes right. up. Otherwise, uh, yeah. Although occasionally, course, occasionally you get the two hands behind the head sort of like splitting the mask in half from behind and the and the lean down out of camera oh, yeah. and the pop oh, up and up yeah yeah, yeah. that's but yeah. no one ever like just sort of just starts you know pulling it away yeah. in bits and bobs and having it <laughs> stuck on their face it's always right. and, and and also has anyone ever been in makeup because i can tell you like you cannot put on that makeup in like an hour or half an hour or 10 minutes or in some of these films i think he's put it on in a minute 
I think in the in the Wu one, he uh, he put on the makeup in what seemed like you know thirty seconds, and I'm like, I'm sorry, to put that makeup on. So you're going to be in a chair for like five <laughs> hours. Well, Mike, with a, I can promise you that when I when I do Mission Impossible twelve, at some point, <laughs> I am going to do a scene where the actor. Where the in the scene in the film he pulls the mask off, but only half of it comes off, but he doesn't know it. <laughs> so he's got half of like somebody's, you know, like an old woman face on, and he's still like being serious. Nice. And now, does he still have the? Does he still have the um, the piece of plaster uh, on his neck that somehow miraculously turns his voice box into the other yeah, guy's voice? Yes, yeah, and it's bro- it's broken, so it's like half cutting in and out. I should point out of this thing, if you actually technically look at what's possible, it's technically possible to make a really good synthetic Tom Cruise, synthetic, you know, pick your actor. It's really, really, really hard. Now, Jason, you'll correct me on this if I'm wrong, to make a synthetic voice thing that sounds like anyone, yet alone oh, yeah. the person. No, of course. I mean, that's... I can make an artificial... President Obama, if I spend enough time and enough money with enough people, but getting a voice track that actually sounds like President Obama from typing in something as opposed to, you know, obviously someone mimicking Well, him. it's not only that. It's, it's, it's highly possible for someone to mimic someone, right? But the chances yep. of that being the same guy who's also the super spy is very... And the right body shape. And the right body shape, which Tom Cruise is clearly not as, as slight as the prime minister's, you know, aide or whatever that guy was. You know, but that, again, we're getting into uh, minutia that is unnecessary in this specific film. Although other films clearly get it wrong, but uh, and also twenty years on, they're still shooting on film. What do we think about that? This was a a, uh, a film shoot. It was well with uh, some Alexa sixty five and some Alexa XT, yeah. and probably but for predominantly, mainly. Yeah, it was predominantly anamorphic as you touched on yeah. thirty five millimeter film, right? I mean, because they I can. Mean, I mean, I, they can. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe I'm the the odd man out here. I just, like, I just don't care. You know, I, I don't thought it was completely it's, exactly. I thought it was like you're doing this. Why? Yeah, I don't care just, if it's shot on film or if it's shot on. You know, I mean, I'll be curious to see uh, what is it, um, the uh, Revenant, the Tarantino. Oh yeah, uh, the uh, Hateful Eight you know, in Ultra Panavision. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'll be curious to see. You know. If if that if I change my tune, you know, like that'll be kind of interesting to check out. But like, well, but you know, that format doesn't like, exist really other way. You know, I mean, that's not like just right, shooting right. super well, exactly. thirty five anamorphic. You could do on any given camera, right? But not seventy mil anamorphic. But I guess I, I guess all I'm saying about it is that you know, in the when it's all said and done, like you know, whether they're shooting you know thirty five or they're shooting you know digitally, like I just don't I don't know that anymore if i was a compositor it would probably make a big difference because i'd be dealing with you know <laughs> brain structure yeah. and stuff like that on the show but you know as a as a viewer you know you could have told me it was shot all digitally and i'd be like oh yeah cool it looked really great and, you, and then you sell me it shot on film i said oh cool yeah it looked really good you know like it's it it almost it seems they just made them i made them hard for themselves by shooting on film yeah i think well there's a yeah. uh, i don't know if you guys listen to mark maron's podcast the wtf podcast but he did a, a great interview with vince gilligan uh, the creator of both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, and they shot all of Breaking Bad on film. Uh, my friend was the A camera operator on the whole series, except for season one, and it's all film, Steadicam or handheld, you know, whatever. And Vince Gilligan said, when it came time to do Better Call Saul, they were like, "Well, you know, advancements have been made, and and let's do a test of what 
let's just shoot all the formats that we would shoot at 55 red alexa yeah. what have you and he's like and we all made the assumption we're going to know we're we're going to pick the film like we know we're, this is an exercise for the studio we're going to pick the film we're all film nuts we know what it looks like and he's like no one could tell the difference yeah and we settled on dragon I just think it's a, you know what i mean yeah just, i just think it's an emotional argument for yeah. some people and and i and i respect yeah. that it's fine i mean i don't yeah. you know i'm not one to but judge but in this film in this i understand if you've got three films and the third film you want to keep to the other two because it's a you know a very artistic kind of statement about you know the look and it's respectful to right. the thing but this is just not this and this yeah, it was just yeah. i reckon they just were yeah here's the other thing i wanted to touch on which uh is both a credit to and a shame for the visual effects guys the the special effects guys do great jobs and we talked about that tom does a great job by actually doing stunts and apparently he could learn to hold his uh, breath underwater for an extraordinarily long time i mean way more, i'm like pushing it to hold 45 seconds i think he was holding like six minutes six minutes which it just seems to me impossible but anyway the, Wait, the thing is he was he held his breath supposedly for six, six minutes yeah. yeah he went into training to learn how to hold his the, breath for like the free drive the free diving uh champion uh world record i think is 28 minutes what yeah i know what? Okay, That's but, crazy. but but here's my thing, right? I remember seeing this film back in the day. It was like a long time ago. It was shot on film. It was like this German guy. He was a completely fanatical about doing it in camera. And he and it was a boat. I think I've told this story before. It was a boat. And this in the in real life, this guy got this boat over a mountain to get it into a lake. And it was all done with, you know, logs and mud. And it was just Yeah, it's Herzog, you know? Was it? Isn't that Herzog? Anyway, the point is... Yeah. Well, I don't know, but I can't even remember. All I can remember is when I saw the actual shot of them actually letting this boat going over this sort of edge in and running on these logs in a real mountain with a real boat shot on real film of a real event splashing into this real water, I went, that looks so fake. <laughs> and the whole documentary was about how they were doing it for real. Yeah, Fitzcarraldo, I think, yeah. Okay, well, I'm reminded of that with this. In the, the special effects guys kept the water so clean when Tom was holding <laughs> his breath for six minutes that it didn't look like water. Yeah. And so Double Negative had to come along in post and add in torrents and bubbles and just make it look like water. Oh, no way. And, That's and too funny. I just think this is just such... Uh, I don't know. I don't even know how I think about this. I, I really respect the fact that you can go to a company as skilled as Double Negative and say, we shot this for real and it doesn't look real. Make it look real yeah. when even real doesn't look real. And <laughs> no, they can say, awesome. we have the artistry to do that. <laughs> because, uh, But by the same token, if in any way you make this look fake, you're going to blow our entire marketing campaign, which was predicated on the fact that Tom was actually underwater and we did these real stunts. And, and somebody say, goes on Twitter and... I have to say the only thing... That looked VFXy to me was the Taurus sequence. Like but, I knew he was but, underwater, but but the but that section felt very okay. This is a VFX sequence. Not that the work wasn't done it well. Didn't yeah, it, wasn't, wasn't, it didn't feel sure VFXy. It felt stagey to me. Yeah, it yeah. felt stagey yeah. to me, like that's sound stagey, but yeah. it didn't feel effectsy. That's a good description. No, that's um, a, yeah, that's what I meant. Like it's not that the VFX weren't well done. It didn't feel. Like he was in a murky, like real murky water. It felt like there was like what you're saying. Like I didn't even know they added stuff to it. I just assumed the water or whatever they did just didn't really pull, you know, it, the real water just didn't really come through. Okay, but my, happened, my point is. from what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. The point is, the point is, 
you know, like it's all very well when somebody says to you, I want you to do this shot and you have to make it look photo real. But it's another thing when they go, this is 100% photo real yeah. and it doesn't look real. <laughs> make it look real with your fake stuff. Yeah. But whatever you do, don't make it look fake because it needs to look real. Yeah. And, and if, if on Twitter everyone had gone, that is so fake, he obviously that was all done CG, it would have seriously undermined the film, right? <laughs> so you've got double negative just having to totally deliver. And similarly, I think it was hysterical that they drove that BMW with, um, with uh, Hunt and uh, whatever down the you know, um, oh, yeah, before yeah. he crashed it. And there were no steps. And Benji's character yells out, stairs, stairs, stairs. And they had to come in and post and just turn all of these ramps into all of these oh. stairs. <laughs> and Bro, it's like, that's, what? That's, uh, that's, oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. And I mean, it was pretty that funny. Really shot. Nice. I assume these well, yeah. were steps. Yeah. You know. No, yeah, there's, they're ramps and they, and they just decided to go and change the whole lot to having steps after they'd done it because the car bounces down don't get me wrong like it's a series of like very short ramps there's nothing wrong with that and and they're really doing driving stuff down that's nothing wrong with that it's just that it wasn't actually stairs and so uh again same thing right you've got all this trouble to have the actors doing stuff you've got this great bmw rigged up that's presumably got like mega cool suspension and uh they're bouncing it down this um incredibly insane uh but in the film, of course, is a long, long series of stairs. And then they go, oh, yeah, that would be better as stairs. And again, if it looks fake and that looked like it was all artificial, uh, then all of a sudden the whole point of yeah. going to the trouble of shooting them goes out the window. But instead of that, no. If you look at any of the B-roll of that sequence, look at what they're driving down and it's just yeah, a, ramped, um, a ramped area. Also, apparently they just, they just destroyed 25 motorcycles and 13 cars. All from BMW. <laughs> Every one of them. And, and haven't you Just got to, another uh, day? At don't the you want to be at the marketing meeting where they go, "We want product placement of your product. Excellent. So we'd like to trash a whole lot of them. No problem. Tom's going to be driving your product. Psh, terrific. By the way, though, uh, the product doesn't end up being particularly serviceable by the end. Yeah. Uh, well, apparently, apparently, uh, the shot where Tom Cruise jumps across the hood and like face plants that was yep. the one where they were like like this is a pristine one can we like this one's not going to get driven can we like whatever <laughs> and then he just totally just smashes the hood you know by just sma- slamming his face into it which no one had told tom cruise apparently that that car was they were like can maybe try to keep that one a little you know safer yeah though of course you know on a film of this budget if it's uh, creatively valid to trash oh, yeah. BMW's car, sorry. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> about Burn that. it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm sure Airbus had some similar discussions about the A400M and yeah. whatever you do, we don't want to kill Tom because that would not be good for sales. Yeah, <laughs> and for general publicity around uh, uh, Airbus's uh, stock. As again, I have no idea how they got bonding and insurance for for that. It just seems absurd. But anyway, all right. Well. The first film, uh, I thought it was good. I thought it a little bit uh, too um, uh, action hero-y for me, but definitely good. Not my favourite department, but definitely one that I was worth seeing. But it led to a series of films that I think have actually not gotten worse, but gotten better yeah, uh, as totally. time goes on. And, uh, and I think we applaud the visual effects artists for now having moved from what is clearly a, what I would call a visual effects film, 
to a film that today that people really I don't think of as an effects film. They think of it as more of an action sequence. And I think most people, if they were articulating this film, would no longer describe it as being a big visual effects film. They describe it as a big old action sequence film, just like they used to do in the old days. Even though in the old days that was Mission Impossible One, and it wasn't done that way. <laughs> is that <laughs> yeah, a fair totally. summation? Yes. Yeah. You know, it's perfect. Perfect. It's, that is the Aruberos of uh, VFX uh, <laughs> summation. Well stated. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Tom's already signed up for Mission Impossible 6, um, which he is going to be presumably Ethan Huntering and producing, and I don't know when that's going to be done, but it's, uh, it's coming probably after Top Gun 2. Um, but uh, yes, I think, I think we're yet to know when, but JJ's on board as well, so uh, Paramount clearly not letting the, uh, the poor guy off the hook, though by 6 we wonder how, many, uh, how much longer uh, he can do it. But hey, who am I to argue? The guy's uh, amazingly good shape. Um, I want to speak to uh, thanking two other guys in amazingly good shape after many years. Um, that would be you two. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show, guys. Jason, where can people uh, track you down? Uh, at my website with my brother, thediamondbros.com, and on the Twitters at uh, Jason Diamond, one word. And Matt? Uh, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Matt Wallen and I've been on a couple other uh, podcasts in the last couple of weeks I did uh, an episode of um, Current Geek which is oddly appropriate I, I suppose for maybe this audience too in some in some uh, in some ways and that was with um, the Frog Pants Network with uh, Tom Merritt and um, uh, what's his name uh, Johnson yeah Tom Merritt used to be on um on uh, Twitter, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but yeah, so around and about here and there. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, of course, I'm uh, Mike Seymour on Twitter, and of course, over at FX Guy. We've got some good stuff coming up. Uh, we've got Maze Runner 2 with our good friend uh, Wes coming up. We've also have got later in the year that big Star Wars thing happening. So uh, hopefully, you guys will, will stay tuned, keep the uh, emails coming. And just to quote, as I like to do sometimes from some of the films, I think there was just one quote that really stood out from these two films. I'm sure you guys won't know what it is, but my favorite one was Asta Lasagna. Just don't get any on you. Until next time, see you guys. That's from MI1. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com.